All right, so if you have a Bible, Colossians uh, chapter 2. We're going to finish up chapter 2 this week, then we'll jump into 3, and we'll kind of move a little bit faster uh, somewhat um, over the next few weeks and finish up here in the middle of June. Um, but Colossians chapter, chapter 2, uh, starting verse 16 here in just a second, we'll read it. But um, I still remember in 2004, it was the year I was a junior in college, about to, about to or actually about to, about to graduate, not long from graduating from college in, in uh, Clearwater, Florida. And I mentioned a few weeks ago about all the hurricanes that happened. But I remember um, there was the story of this girl, her name's Tilly Smith. She was just this 10-year-old girl, uh, so just a year older than my son Levi. I feel like Levi would be someone who would be a lot like her, who paid attention to her studies, unlike I did uh, to some of my classes. But um, she was just enjoying another day on a beach um, in 2004 with her family, and she noticed that something was off with the ocean, uh, and it was doing something really strange. It was bubbling and receding pretty quickly. And so thankfully, she had paid attention in her uh, science classes and geography classes and knew that this was a warning sign of a tsunami. And so she quickly started trying to get her parents to like, hey, like we need to get off this beach and we need to get everyone else off this beach. And so they, she's warned her parents and her parents believed her and they started to warn everyone else on that whole beach. And sure enough, they were able to get everyone off that beach that day before the tsunami came. But if you remember, back in 2004, uh, when the tsunami hit, um, over 230,000 people died in 14 different countries through the tsunami that happened in 2004. Uh, some of the waves were calculated as over 100 feet uh, tall. And on that beach, though, that day, every single person lived because she paid attention to the signs, she knew things, and she started warning people of the imminent danger that they were in. And so she warned, and so there's something that's important about warnings. Uh, maybe you've had someone warn you about a relationship or warn you about a decision you were about to make, you know, like, hey, you probably shouldn't buy XYZ, it's going to be a problem for you, or you shouldn't do this, or you shouldn't be on your phone too much, you know, that's the usual warning, it seems like, from everybody, right, like, we're just on our phones too much or something, but there's something about warnings, oftentimes they come, and, they, and they're not necessarily known to us as an individual, it usually takes someone outside to say, hey, pay attention, you might have missed this, because ultimately, we have a lot of blind spots in our lives, and in our passage today, Paul is going to address exactly this. He's going to give us three really important warnings, especially for this church in Colossae. It was a church and a culture that had, I mean, it, it, it was like we were talking last week. It was like the, I don't know, like the golden corral of religions. I mean, it's like you want this and have this. If you want this type of religion, pursue this. If you want this type of thing that you want to pursue, it would fit everything that you wanted it to fit to. Was They had a religion for it, and they had a, a view on spirits and all these different things. And so it was this huge uh, a la carte. You could just kind of call on whatever you want and get whatever you want and pursue it. And this is the audience that Paul's addressing here, and he's been challenging them on who Christ is. We've been looking at that. We've really tired the whole book, this series, um, Jesus Above All. I mean, he's over all things. And he's been emphasizing that, but here there's an, he's, we're getting more detail, like we looked at last week, more detail into what was really going on in this church, and what were some of the things that they needed to be warned about. 
And so last week we looked at the importance of being rooted, established, and built up in Christ. And then today he's given us this warnings about, these really these three warnings uh, for believers of this counterfeit Christianity or counterfeit ultimately religion because it's not uh, real, it's not real Christianity. So look with me, I want to read this passage together. We'll just read it consecutively and then we're going to look at these three warnings uh, this morning. So if you have a Bible, chapter 2, starting in verse 16, it says this, Let therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Then he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that will all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You see, Paul, you can already read this. He's warning the Colossian church uh, of giving them some strong warnings of really this counterfeit gospel or this counterfeit Christianity. And the first warning he gives us is right in verse 16. It's this first warning in your notes. It's a warning against legalism. It's the warning against legalism. Look what he says here. Look at verse uh, 16 again. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You see, these are new Christians. This church is establishing. It's being formed. These are new believers. And so naturally, as this first age of Christians is coming into existence, as they're starting to gather a following of, of Christ followers, the Jewish heritage is strong. The heritage is thousands of years before them. They've been told over and over and over again how they are to act, what foods they are to eat, what celebrations to celebrate, uh, what holidays, all those things. They've been told these things all through history. And then all of a sudden, these Gentile believers, these outsiders uh, from the, is- the, the, the people of God, the Israelites, these outsiders are placing their faith in Jesus. And so what's happening is there's these people, and he's saying, therefore, notice what he says in verse 16. He's warning them about this. Don't let people pass judgment on you in question of food and drink. So some are eating certain foods that the Jews were like, no, these aren't, I'm not able to eat this type of food. I'm a Jew. God has established these things in the Old Testament, and I'm not allowed to eat these things. And so, but yet, here's these Gentile believers eating these things and drinking these things and not celebrating certain feasts and certain other things. And they're like, don't, and Paul's saying, don't let outsiders or don't let people pass judgment on you for not doing these things. 
So what is he getting at? I mean, here, let, me, let me first, because you know, we use a word legalism, and I, I want to put a, a definition on it. I like uh, Tim Keller's definition of legalism. He says this, legalism is looking to something besides Jesus Christ uh, in order to be acceptable and clean before God. I'll say that again. He says, legalism is looking to something besides Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable and clean before God. Ultimately, what basically he's saying, and many other people have given a definition on it, but legalism is looking to anything outside of Christ for acceptance by God, to be accepted by God. So legalism would be like, hey, I have, I've gone to church this week, God, accept me. I have read my Bible. I've, had, I've, had a, I've got like a long streak on my Bible reading app, and it's like 100 days in a row or 200 days in a row or whatever. I've read my Bible every single day, God, so you should accept me. See, that's, that's legalism. Legalism is putting on other things besides what Christ has done for salvation to be accepted by God. And here's what Paul's saying. He's warning against these people. It's two different w- approaches. You can be a legalist yourself, or you can allow legalists who, who try to put these things on you. Paul's warning about both of these things. I mean, here's some of the things he mentions. He mentions food and drink. You know, most likely this was the Jewish dietary laws. If you had your, you don't have to do this right now, and I don't, I'm not going to take you there, but you can write it in your notes if you want. Leviticus 11 is a long chapter in, in the Levitical law. It's the laws that God had established with his people, God's chosen people, the Israelites. And he had established these dietary laws. He said very specifically, this is what you're to eat. This is what you're not to eat. You're allowed to eat these things. You're not allowed to eat these things. You're allowed to drink these things, but not these things. You can read it on your own in Leviticus 11. And so these were some of the festivals as well, uh, the religious festivals. In Leviticus 23, if you read that chapter in, in Leviticus, you'll see all the different holidays and festivals and, and uh, things that the Jews would celebrate uh, on an annual basis. And these were to be celebrated, and there was very much stipulations with that. Uh, in, also in Leviticus 23, at the very beginning, they're given the, 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 the laws behind Sabbath and what they were to do, what they were not allowed to do that day. You're not to do any work. Certain foods you avoid completely. You make sure it's out of your kitchen, it's out of your home. In 11, all those things. All those restrictions were laid out by God in Leviticus 23. Uh, the new moon celebration that he mentions here in our passage as well in verse 16, a, a fe- a, to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, as he says here in verse 16. The new moon celebration, again, was something that happened the very be- the first day of the month. It was, it was given some instructions on how they were to deal with their sacrifices and how they were to s- offer sacrifice on the first day of the month. Each of these things uh, were, were good and, and ultimately established by God. And in various ways, each of these were ways that believers could show their devotion to God and their dependence on Him. This showed that also a big part of, for the Jews uh, was this set them apart from all the rest of society. You see, all the culture around them, all the other nations, the Amorites, the Perizzites, you know, if you read your Old Testament, uh, the Philistines, all the different ones, all of them had various gods in different ways, the ancient Near Eastern uh, mythology and all those things as well, and all their views of religions. God had chosen his people to be different than the rest of society. They were distinct. It was to set them apart. But ultimately, it was also a way for them to show their dependence on God and their devotion to him. But here's the question. How can Paul 
throw out what God had instituted in the first place? I mean, I think that's a natural question that we would come to. How can Paul say these things and tell them, don't let people pass judgment on you by not eating and drinking certain foods and not celebrating certain feasts or celebrating, doing either one? How can Paul say these things? How does he go back if you... Because again, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 11 or 23, you'll see God speaking to Moses, God telling them what they're to do, these celebrations. So God instituted them. How can Paul remove them? How can Paul address this? Well, the reality is ultimately Paul didn't uh, remove them. Christ, when he came, instituted a new covenant that came because of Christ. And this is exactly what he says. Look at verse 17. Paul's saying, because if you're like, because this is what his critics would have been saying. Paul's doing away with our Jewish heritage and our way of life. Gentiles and all others need to be doing these same things too. So why would Paul say this? Look at verse 17. He says, these, referring to all that we just read, the food and drink, the regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these, he says, are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. What is he saying? These, referring to the religious and ceremonial laws, are shadows of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. I mean, what is a shadow? Shadows are pretty cool. Uh, And sometimes it can be extremely frightening as well. I mean, if you've ever been in a situation where you're a little nervous and all of a sudden a shadow appears, that's kind of terrifying, right? If you're walking kind of in the dark and there's a little bit of moonlight and all of a sudden there's a shadow of a of a, I don't know, like a rat or something, but it looks massive. You think it's a lion about to jump out at you. It can be terrifying. Um, Like for us, I remember, I still remember this. Amanda will too, I'm sure. When we would leave Calvary, uh, the church that we served at for seven years before moving here and planning Redeemer is, um, we would, on a Sunday night, we would leave church and we'd go out to our car and they had these massive lights, if you remember, Amanda, like they had these massive lights that would shine on the building and our kids would love to run in front of that bright light. I'm like, it's going to blind you. That thing is so bright. But they would make themselves massive. They would, like, they, their body would, like Grace would, I remember Grace would get up in front of it and she'd do her little dance in front of it and that kind of stuff. And it's like, you can see her huge shadow on the wall or the boys would try to make little animals or, you know, you do those kind of things at night. I still do those sometimes. Just kidding, I don't. I don't do those. Um, but, you know, like there's something about a shadow, but what, it, what is a shadow doing? A shadow is, is showing us it's not the person. It would be really awkward if I, when I tried to talk to Amanda, instead of talking directly to her, I just talk to her shadow and I just follow her shadow around and have a conversation. You guys would be like, you're crazy. You're weird. Like, what are you doing? Why would you be talking to uh, a shadow? Because it's a shadow. It's not, it's not what he's saying here in verse 17. There, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, here's what happens in Scripture. This is really neat. So, like, we even refer to people, right? Like, someone who's lived this great life, right? And then they've passed away, but they've, ha- they've left a huge imprint on society or on a family or uh, on a church or a ministry, whatever. Like, their shadow is still there even though they're gone. You see, like, for people, their shadow is, is, is like, in their past. The really cool thing about Jesus was in the Old Testament, his shadow was forward before his even existence. His shadow was there in the Old Testament, and his shadow is in the future as well. He's kind of a shadow both directions. And so Jesus cast this giant shadow over his whole creation. 
Psalms describes it this way, that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. I mean, think about that. The heavens are like a giant billboard declaring the greatness of God. It's just, it's shouting, I'm massive. Like, I named them all, I've put them out there. And every time you build a bigger telescope, I become bigger to you. Because it's just this big, it's the known universe. When you look at creation, it is declaring his beauty, his glory. I mean, see, all of creation, and, and Jesus' shadow is over all of it. I mean, think about it. I mean, so much so that our history, our days, our years are determined by, we, we, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but before Christ, we, like, like it's 500 B.C. Is the, is the history. Like, and they're counting down to when Christ was born. A.D. literally means Anno Domini, which is shortened for the Latin phrase, the year of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, our dates on our calendars are on Jesus's calendar. Like, Jesus comes, it's before he came. Here's the dates in history. After he comes, here's the dates. We're 2022 since Jesus was born, approximately. I mean, our calendars, God's shadow is everywhere, but ultimately those things are a shadow. Uh, there's an alleged quote by Napoleon Bonaparte. It may be apocryphal, um, as it'd be surprising to be actually from him, but the reality is it's a true statement, whether it comes from him or, or someone wrote it uh, posthumously or something like that. But he says this, this is the quote that's alleged to be by him. He says, I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He says, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creation of our genius? is upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour millions would die for him. If Socrates would enter the room, we should rise and do him honor. But he says, but if Jesus Christ came into the room, we should fall down on our knees and worship him. You know, whether that's actually from Napoleon or not, he's right, and whoever wrote that, that every person would bow down to Christ. One day, the Bible tells us that whether you do in this life or the next, every knee will bow and every tongue will profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul is warning that legalism comes and it's, and you're putting all of these things and you're putting these different things, all these different rituals and things. I, listen, I, I, I've grown up in these kind of churches. I've experienced it. I've watched other friends and people that have been in churches where the expectation was like, yeah, you believe in Jesus, but you also have to do this, this, and this to be a genuine follower of Jesus. You see, that's legalism. That's adding something to what Christ has already done. And Paul's warning against this type of religion. It is, these things were just shadows. They were pointing to the substance, Jesus Christ in verse 17. So looking on, look at verse 18. Uh, this is our second warning. It's found in verse 18 and 19. It's a warning against mysticism. It's a warning against mysticism. It says this in verse 18. Let no one, so in the first verse he says, let no one pass judgment on you. Here he says, let no one disqualify you. He says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, 
going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. You see here, Paul's second warning is against a mysticism and asceticism. And here, what do we mean by mysticism? Well, mysticism is a pursuit of a deeper or higher religious experience. And really, I think the key word there is experience. And so there's some, there's some religious and denominations like uh, Pentecost, certain Pentecostal churches where you, I mean, like, I mean I've heard stories of, of people who, uh, they, they, they get saved, they put their faith in Jesus, and they're in a, ch- in a Pentecostal church, and, and the people are like, look, you got to speak in tongues to, be, to really be filled with the Spirit. And if you're not filled with the Spirit, like, you may not even be a genuine follower of Jesus. And so I've heard of people like crying and weeping because they're like, but I'm not able to speak in tongues. They're like, I want to, but I don't know how. And I'm like, they're just very confused. And so there's this idea of saying like, you're missing out you're not, you haven't gotten the higher experience because you haven't done certain things. And Paul's warning against this type of mysticism, these feelings, as he describes as well, these feelings and these intuitions, these visions. And then he also mentions asceticism. Well, what is asceticism? Asceticism is an extreme form of self-denial from certain foods, activities, clothing, you know, wealth, social interactions. Paul is warning the Colossian church about the false teachers and mystics who would try to disqualify them for not being spiritual enough. Like, you're just not super spiritual. You haven't had, like, an angelic type of experience where it's like, like almost like you're seeking a spiritual high. And he's warning. He's like, don't let those people disqualify you because you haven't experienced something like this. And here's, here's what's interesting about this. He's like, don't let someone disqualify you because there's some people that I follow that I so have appreciated their writing, their teachings. Um, I, I don't agree with every single thing from these people, so I'm always a little hesitant to name names and those kind of things. But I know for me personally, I'm thankful for the ministries of David Platt and Francis Chan uh, and some of the, the things that they have not just taught, but they've lived out, um, especially when it comes to They've done a really a lot of good in exposing our casual Christianity in America, which is so easy to do here in America, to just live like, ah, oh, we're, we're good. Like, my, my, I can just live this nice, comfortable, casual life and be a follower of Jesus. And they've been like, no, I mean, like, the cost of following Jesus. I, mean, I think it was uh, Francis Chan that said he would only take a $36,000 uh, salary from his mega church in California, and eventually he sold everything and moved overseas to Asia. Now he's in Hong Kong, I believe. Uh, David Platt has been on so many mission trips and serving and reaching communities that are these, he has a passion, a heart for the unreached people groups. I'm thankful for their ministry, especially, especially when it's against the backdrop of so many prosperity gospel ministers. The name it and claim it. Like, like listen, you, you deserve this. But here's what, we're, what Paul's saying. Don't let someone disqualify you by what you do have. And if you don't have, like, it doesn't matter if you have a lot and God has blessed you in this way, but it doesn't mean God's blessing you and you have a lot because you've been so good of a person. God blesses some people for whatever reason he chooses and others he doesn't in the material way. But he's not saying, he's saying, don't let someone disqualify you one way or the other. 
And, and this is what we do. And so we have to be careful because like some people can go to the extreme and say like, you got to just live a perverse life. Like you've got to be able to literally just, you just live on, and this is what would the, a lot of the Catholics would do. I mean, think about it. This is what priests do. Priests, they, get, they, they choose a celibate lifestyle. They're not going to get married, and they're, and they're going to say that way. Nuns, the same way. Monks, they wear a certain drab type of clothing, uh, and they, and they, they want to just stay very simple. Other, other religions do this is very similar to this as well. And we can be like, oh, man, look. Man, look how spiritual they are. They've given up everything. Or look how spiritual that person is because they have done, uh, uh, have, have chosen this type of lifestyle. The point Paul is making here is he's like, don't let someone disqualify you, really ultimately one way or the other, insisting on this asceticism, uh, which again, what we're saying with asceticism is this extreme form of self-denial. Because you're denying yourself of all these things. Now, do, are we called to do these things? Yes. Are we going to see this in chapter 3? Yes. But what the emphasis in this chapter is, at the end of this chapter, is the danger of legalism. The danger of this super spiritual, like it's all about, like you've got to get the check boxes and you've got to fill out the form and you've got to say, okay, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm not doing this, and like make sure that you fit in here. And he's saying, don't let people disqualify you. Don't let people pass judgment on you. And then he gives this another warning, but first he's like, don't let people look down on you, like verse 18. He says this, but notice the warning, because here's what happens, right? This is what happens in the heart of people. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, but notice what happens. Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Because what happens, right? Like, oh, I'm giving these things up, and you can very easily let pride step in, and you can look down on people for not choosing your type of, uh, of like, self-denial. Or by having these high spiritual moments, like, oh, this person's not as spiritual as me because his prayer time wasn't two hours this morning. It's so easy to cast judgment on people for their spirituality, and he's warning against these things. And then here he comes to verse uh, 20 and 23, where we see this next warning. And really, it's a culmination of legalism as well, but you'll see what I I mean by here. But So in your notes here, it's a warning against a do-it-yourself religion. To do-it-yourself Christianity which isn't really Christianity at all, but it's a warning against a do-it-yourself Christianity. Look at verse 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Again, there's that legalism. Why are you submitting to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Again, because the Pharisees added so much to the law, and they had added so many laws to God's laws to try to protect you from breaking the law of God. And they, but they would treat these laws as if they were the law of God. And he's like, verse 23, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I mean, this is his warning against a do-it-yourself religion. Um, I appreciate this quote from 
Mark Manel, uh, who wrote a commentary on this book, Colossians and Philemon as well. He said this, if we imagine that we can control our most sinful impulses and desires by being obsessively religious and doing so without Christ, then he says, Paul has strong words for us. It won't work. What he's saying is if we, if, if we really can imagine that we can, that we, do we really think that we can control our most sinful impulses on our own, that you can, you can hold yourself back and do that apart from Christ? You can't. People try. They try really hard. They try really hard. And maybe you have spent a lot of your life trying really hard to be good or to be religious. Paul's saying you can't do it yourself. This is not, the, this is not Christianity. Christianity is not do it yourself. It has been done for you. We, we just sang the song. Jesus paid it all. He said this on the cross, some of his very last words. It is finished. Not, he didn't say, I'm finished. He says, it is finished. He had completed the work. He had done what we couldn't do. He brought salvation, not me. And it's not about do it yourself mentality of like, hey, man, I've got to don't handle, don't do this. I've got to strive hard, asceticism and, and mysticism, be all super spiritual. And he says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. And I think it's easy for us. We can look at people and we can try to judge them on that, right? Like, oh, they look like a Christian. I've been a pastor long enough to know they might look like it on the outside, but man, their home, their marriage, their private life is a disaster. It might look it, like he's saying here. It might look the part. These indeed have the appearance, verse 23, of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, a do-it-yourself Christianity. And he's warning here, and he's saying, and Paul's really, his greater point is, if we are not completely dependent on Christ and what he has done for us, religion is useless. It has a, is of no substance. The substance, remember earlier in our passage, in verse 17, is who? It's Christ. The shadow was the, the festivals. Those things were the, the shadow pointing us to Christ and pointing the people of Israel to Christ and who he was. The law was established to not, to not be like, all right, now I've got a, I got a standard to keep up to so God will accept me. No, the law was to show them that they couldn't keep it, that they needed a Savior to save them from the, where they do break the law. This is the gospel. Uh, Robert Wall said it really well. He says this, any Christless version of truth has no redemptive value. It cannot save. No Christless version of truth has the ability to save. Only Christ. I want to end with this. Uh, we were talking about Martin Luther earlier, um, right before the service, and uh, the 95 Thesis. And, but, but before... before um, before this point, I mean, if you've probably heard a little bit about Martin Luther in the 1500s, um, he was a very devout Roman Catholic, um, wanted, to, strived hard, a self-made religion, a do-it-yourself Christianity. And so w for him, there was this, especially in the medieval times, uh, people would go on these pilgrimages to Rome, and they would, and there were certain things, and there was one specific thing, and it was the, the Scala Sancta. And what they considered was the holy steps. And what they said was from Jerusalem, the, 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 same, G, the, the same steps that Pontius Pilate's palace had where Jesus would have 
walked up and down off of in his trial and and through his crucifixion. They had taken those steps and brought those to Rome, and it's called the Scala Sancta, these holy steps. They were were presumed to be these steps from Pontius Pilate. And they were thought to be this. But So during this time, the medieval pilgrims would travel to Rome, and they would do this pilgrimage and do these things. And so one of the things that people would do is they would climb up these steps on their knees, and they would just go up these steps on their knees. And so what we, we learn about Martin Luther is he was going up these steps, and he would go up one step at a time on his knees, and he'd pray the Lord's Prayer every step. And what he was saying that he was doing as he's climbing these steps on his knees, he was praying this Lord's Prayer, and his hope was to get someone out of what, what Catholics believe was purgatory, a loved one who was being, in his view, was being punished by God, and he wanted to pray him out of that to get to heaven, uh, which we know is not in Scripture anywhere, but this is what he believed at the time. And so he got to the top. He had been praying and for hours going up these steps, and when he reached the top, he was filled with so many doubts. And not long after that, he became convinced of the worthlessness of such acts. And he came to realize that salvation was by grace alone, uh, um, in Christ alone. And in the Heidelberg uh, Disputation of 1518, which was a foundational event of the Reformation, he's quoted as saying this, It is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. You see, he learned that salvation is all of grace. It's not works. It's not a do-it-yourself religion. And so the gospel is radically different. You know, every, 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 almost every other area of your life is earned. You deserve. You worked hard. You deserve to, to have this paycheck. You, you worked hard. You did this. Or you've put effort into this relationship, so you deserve to be loved in return kind of thing. And so Everything in our lives is kind of, we view it as a earning in a, in a way to, to, we deserve something. But the gospel is totally different. One of my favorite, probably one of my favorite quotes of Tim Keller's is this. He says, religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. That's what religion says. Religion is, I obey, therefore God accepts me. I, I try to follow his commands. And, and this isn't just within quote, Christianity. This is outside. These are all religions. Really, religion is do this, obey, you get accepted. But he says the gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. You have been, God has paid the price for our sin. What do we need? We need his grace. We need his forgiving grace and salvation, God to forgive us of our sins. But here's what you and I need too, if you're a follower of Jesus already, is you need his transforming grace. You need God's grace to change you. You need God's grace to, let you to, to allow you to live a holy and set-apart life. I mean, these, and this is what we're going to say. What I'm not saying is that, well, you can just go live and do whatever you want, and God's grace is greater to forgive your sin. No, we're going to see this very specifically in chapter 3 when he says, put off this, this, and this, and put on this. I mean, he's going to be very clear on how we deal with sin and we deal with the, the, the pleasures of this world. But what he's saying in this passage is there is a major warning, and it's the warning that I want to make sure we get across for us. 
Because a lot of you have grown up in churches just like myself and have grown up in the church. And it's so easy for a pastor or a, a parent or a loved one or a friend or a grandparent to put on these things and say, like, you're not, I mean, literally, I, I grew up in a church that was like, you go to a movie theater, it is like you're a heathen. Or if you play with uh, playing cards, a deck of face cards, like it has got a king on it, you can play rook, <laughs> you, can play, you can play skip bow, but if you get a, car, a 52 card deck and play with that, like you're non-believer, like I mean to that extreme. And some of you have grown up in that too. And Paul's saying, don't let people disqualify you. Don't people let people judge you on these things. Now, are there certain things that we need to abstain from? Yes. Scripture is clear on some things. And we ask those kind of questions. Is like when you're dealing with an issue and you're like, go more as a believer, go with more conscience, like with your conscience. And is scripture, God been very clear on this? If he hasn't been clear, go to prayer and go ask God. Don't just go like, well, God's, man, God's given me the green light to do whatever I want. No, God's given us his word. But here he's especially referring to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, not everything, this isn't just nullify the Old Testament. I'm going to preach through the Old Testament as much as I'll probably preach through the New Testament. But we have to read the Old Testament with now the goggles and the lens of how Christ is the shadow in the Old Testament is pointing to the substance of Christ. I've said this, I think, m- several times when we talked in uh, membership and different things like that about the Bible is the Old Testament is pointing us to, it is pointing us to Christ. It's anticipating Christ. The New Testament is explaining Christ. But all of Scripture is redemptive. It's the redemptive storyline of Christ's salvation. So religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I will obey. We're going to see this tension is resolved in the next chapter as we look at it next week. But for now, we'll kind of chew on this great gospel truth. So let me pray. Father, we um, help us to be humble. There's some, several warnings, just even in this passage here, of, of pride. The pride of looking down on others because they don't look the part, or they're not observing things the way you think that they should be done. Father, help us to, to always be humble. Help us to not be prideful. Help us to pursue holiness. I would obviously say in America, the, the leanings are more towards living for this world than it is to, to be a legalist. Um, but at the same time, it is easy for us to put regulations and things on people and an expectation on the world. And so, Father, help us to be wise in this area. Help us to listen to your word as it speaks. Uh, give us wisdom in decisions where there is a little bit of a gray area. Father, help us to be always wanting to be Christ-like. Always. Help us to look to your word for guidance. Thank you for the truth that it is, that it is for us. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the offer of salvation that you have paid it all. And I pray, Father, that our lives would be rooted, built up, established in Christ. That our lives you're the cornerstone, Father. You are our everything. You're the head, even as the warning it has in this passage of these people who are trying to be super spiritual, actually getting themselves disconnected from Christ, the head of the church. And so, Father, may we always stay connected. May we always look to you, to what you have established, what you have said, 
And may we obey where you say to obey. May we be always pursuing you. Father, help us to live in this balance, this difficult line of, of, of veering one way or the other. I pray that we would, again, do this with, um, with grace. Give us the grace to, to, to change. Some of us are maybe fighting a sin or a, a struggle. We've been trying for a long time on our own, but we haven't really asked for your grace. I pray that we would do that consistently, asking for the grace to change, asking for the transforming grace of God to change us, to take us from a life of sin into a life of holiness. So help us, God. Help us to live our lives for you.